The first chapter, as you will remember, has opened with such bleakness of the tragic events that took place in the life of Naomi, a mother whose husband died, whose two sons died, and who is left with a tenacious and devoted daughter-in-law called Ruth. And the two of them travel from Moab, where they've been residing, to Bethlehem in Judah. Naomi is a Hebrew. Ruth is a Moabitess. She belongs to the foreign, a foreign people. And so they find themselves trying to start a new life without all the men that they had once depended upon. And this is how things begin to unfold for them. It says in chapter 2, Now Naomi, it's a mother-in-law, had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, that was her husband, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she's continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants." And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. And when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. And then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? Where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. I want to think today with you about the theme of the kindness of God 
and particularly ask with you the question, how is it that God allows us to experience his kindness? How does he show us his kindness? And how do we feel his kindness in our lives? And I think at the very general level, you can answer that in two ways. On the one hand, you can speak of the way that God shows us his kindness in a very direct sense, which is to say that to be a Christian is to know something of the intimacy of the Lord's presence in your life at moments or his love shed abroad in your heart, the sense that you know him, that you've heard him speak to you through his word or by his spirit. There's a sense in which he, you, you know him and you've felt his kindness in your life. And that's a very direct way in which God comes into our lives. But the ordinary day-to-day way in which we feel the kindness of God is indirect, which is to say that it is mediated through people, and particularly through God's people. That in a sense, the people of God become the sort of hands and feet to display the kindness of God to others. And I see in that a profound challenge to us all and an opportunity that we are called to be those who not only have received the kindness and the grace of God, but who then become channels of that grace and that kindness towards others, which means that whatever else God has for you to do in your life, this is part of the most fundamental reason why God has you here on earth to be a minister of his grace, to be a bearer of his kindness, to be someone through whom the kindness of God is felt so that others experience and taste it for themselves. Now, this seems to me to be very obviously true in the book of Ruth. You remember how, as I said, the the story began in the darkest of tragedies with a woman who is surrounded by death. Everyone all the men in her life whom she loved and cherished have passed away and she's felt she's left bereft and totally brokenhearted to the point where she begins to question God's goodness towards her. And do you remember how at the end of that first chapter when she's, she goes back home to Bethlehem, she's been away for 10 years and the friends who she's known previously see her and they say, is this Naomi? Which means pleasant. And then she says, don't call me Naomi, call me bitter, call me Mara, because the Lord has dealt bitterly, very bitterly with me. And there's a kind of sense in which our whole soul is heavy and darkened by the reality of suffering, such that she's, she feels that the kindness and the goodness of God is, is, is a forgotten reality in her life. God is not being good to me. But we begin to see the sunlight breaking through the clouds in Naomi's life. And you ask, well, how does God show kindness to Naomi? And the obvious answer is through the actions of two people. We saw last week how one of those people, the heroine of the book, this woman Ruth, this foreign woman, this Moabite, who's not even uh, part of the people of God to begin with, how she becomes a channel of the grace of God to Naomi in the friendship and devotion that she shows to her. What a powerful challenge Naomi's friendship to Ruth is to us. But then someone else steps into the picture, and it's this man, Boaz. And you may have missed what a significant turning point in the book it was when Boaz is first introduced to us in the first verse, and it just says this, that Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz, and Ruth 
Uh, and the, yeah, sorry, that's the end of that verse. His name was Boaz. And you think, well, that's easy to miss. But it actually is a profound t- turning point in the course of the story. And it's not just because, not just looking at it through very Western eyes, looking, thinking about this as a love story. We might read the book of Ruth primarily just as a love story, the account of how two people fell in love and, and ended up married. And so at this moment, it's, it's like one of those romantic comedies, and they're, you know, they're all basically the same, aren't they? At some point in the story, the famous actor steps into the scene, doesn't he? And you recognize his face, whether it's the Tom Hanks or Hugh Grant or whoever else it is. And at that point, you take a nap because you know what's going to happen from then on, don't you? There's no surprises. From the, you've seen him. You, the end is, is pretty much a foregone conclusion. You think, is that what's going on here as the author introduces Boaz? And I tell you that to read it primarily just through that romantic lens is very much to narrow the scope of what's going on here. The ancient Israelite, when they read this story, and they hear the introduction of this man as he steps into the scene, this man Boaz, their ears were alert to his presence in the picture for a number of reasons that maybe we don't initially appreciate. The first and most obvious of them is that he's a man. Now, as I said, I don't want you to think just primarily through a romantic lens here. What you have to understand and appreciate is that Ruth's position as a widow, a young widow, was extraordinarily vulnerable. The ancient world did not know anything of an existence for a young woman like this outside of a household headed up by a a man. So there were no independent women. You know, when when, uh, uh, Beyonce sang The Shoes on My Feet, I bought it. The clothes on my back, I bought it. The rock I'm rocking, I bought it. (laughs) Because I depend on me when I want it. That, That idea was entirely foreign to the ancient world, which was completely built around the household as the basic unit of the economy. And the household, it wasn't like she could just go and find a job somewhere. There were no companies in which you could find jobs. Her place, if she had a place, would have been within the economic unit of a household, headed by a man who offered provision and protection and put the potential of being a father, but then also the unit of industry. So the household became the place where you produce Uh, goods and where you sell things and where you raise children and you run servants and all these kinds of things. Everyone knew that as their most fundamental reality. And it's a very foreign reality to us. It may be the case that you have been working from home a little bit more than you used to. But working from home is not the same thing as the biblical notion of the household. Because you could work anywhere, couldn't you? And also you can live with anyone. Many of you do flat shares. It doesn't really matter who you live with. That's not the way the household worked in the ancient world. So this woman finds herself in a very disjointed position as someone who is not belonging anymore to a household with a man. And so as soon as Boaz steps into the scene, the ancient reader sees a man. And it doesn't really matter what he looks like. He doesn't need to be Hugh Grant. He can just have a pulse. He's a man. And that is what matters here. The first thing that is, is that he's a man. And this, by the way, is, is there. You can see this assumption layered in in the question that Boaz asked when he first sees her gleaning in his field. He doesn't ask, who is she? Which is the question you or I might have asked. He asks, whose young woman is she? She has to belong to someone. She has to be part of a household. The assumption is there. So the first thing is he's a man. 
The other thing that, that the ancient reader would have picked up on that you and I perhaps overlook here is that he's also related. Now, for us, this is a massive red flag, right? <laughs> I have friends who shall remain nameless, who may or may not be part of this church, who during their dating life suspected, discovered that their, their, their lineage comes from a similar part of the country and therefore had to make a family tree to discover whether they were related or not, just to rule out that possibility. But for Boaz, this was a, this was a massive green tick. Uh, they weren't blood-related. They were related through uh, the dead husband and father-in-law. And that was very important, as you'll see in the rest of the story, because of the, the necessity of continuing the family line. You needed to marry into the family and bear children so that the family line could continue. They're related. The other thing about him is the way that he's described here. And they use a very rare phrase here to describe Boaz in this first verse when he, the author describes him as a worthy man. And this language actually it does not occur very often in the Bible, and it's very difficult to translate into English in a way that actually captures everything that's being said about him. Sometimes it's used to speak of someone's valiance, that they're a kind of warrior. And so it's used of Gideon, for example, in that way, to speak of his valiance. Sometimes it's used to speak of someone's character, the depth of their character, and uh, the sense that, that they are someone noble and upright. And sometimes it just speaks of someone's wealth, and there's no one word in English that really captures all those ideas together. And so the, the uh, translators have opted for worthy, but it doesn't really put across exactly who he was and what he represented in the community. Perhaps the ancient, the old English idea of knighthood is the closest we can get to. It doesn't mean very much these days, but it did once upon a time mean a combination of all those things. Someone of valor, someone of character, and someone of great wealth. Perhaps something like that is being communicated to us about Boaz. And the point that I want you to, to log here at the outset is this. That God is at work. It becomes very obvious that the hand of God's providence is on their situation. That they go from this position of being totally bereft and, and totally vulnerable. And then it tells us how after introducing Boaz and Ruth having this idea, I'm going to go and glean in the field. It says she happened to come into the part of the field belonging to Boaz. And of course, there are no chance happenings in Scripture. When God is beginning to turn the page for Naomi and Ruth and beginning to bring the sunshine of his kindness into their lives, what does he do? He brings into their life a person. Someone who will be the bearer of grace and of kindness to them. And I want us to, to sit with that for a while. Understand the challenge that that is to us. That when God wants to reveal his kindness to others who are vulnerable or in need or broken, the main way in which he does that and in which he brings healing to people is through the kindness of his, his people, his children. And I want us to think carefully about the ways in which Boaz embodies the kindness of God. What it is that he does, because everything about his actions here just, just radiates the goodness and kindness of God. And I want to show you a number of ways in which that unfolds in the narrative. Each of which is instructive to us about the way that God wants and expects us to act as his, his people. The first is this. 
that he sees the need. Boaz sees the needy person. Now, what, what's going on here is this. Ruth, having traveled back with Naomi with nothing, they just come and they're beginning to set up a household. They have no means of feeding themselves. Nothing. There's no welfare system as you and I understand it. She, takes, she has an idea to take advantage of a law that had existed since the time of Moses, which was called the law of gleaning. And this is what Moses wrote in the book of Deuteronomy, what God commanded. It says, when you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, the sheaf is a little bundle of stalks, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. And just notice, by the way, that Ruth ticks all of those boxes. She's a sojourner because she's a foreigner who's come to live in Israel. She's fatherless in that her father-in-law has passed away. And she's a widow because her husband has died. So she more than qualifies for this provision that was made out in the law. And this is what they were expected to do. As harvest time began, the, the reapers would go out with their sickles and they'd be gathering. There were no combine harvesters, so it was laborious work and it had to be done quickly, lest the, the crop be spoiled. So they would send a whole horde of reapers out into the fields and they'd be just, just gathering, gathering, working from the beginning of day till, till the, the sun went down, scything the wheat, gathering it up into bundles and then just and quickly harvesting. And as they went, perhaps they'd forget a bundle of grain on the floor or they'd miss a few stalks along the way or the heads of the barley would fall onto the ground on, and, and be left behind. No one does a perfect job. And the command in the law was, do not go back and collect what you've left behind. Because when the poor come behind you, they should be able to gather up the bits and pieces that you've left. The, the expectation is not that they'll gather very much, but that they will gather enough in order to feed themselves. And so there's this dignity conferred upon them that they can, they can exercise, their, they can do work in order to feed themselves, but they're not expected to be able to get particularly well-fed or wealthy from that action of gleaning. It's just sort of the leftovers, as it were, or the scraps that are left behind. And it raises this question of what is the just or righteous thing for Boaz to do in that, situ in that situation? He owns the land, his reapers are gathering, and there's a woman gleaning in his field, someone he doesn't know. And we're obsessed these days, aren't we, with language of justice and what is justice? The idea that we presently have, which is that it means something like equality, I think is the, the closest synonym that we have in modern English for what we understand by justice. That's not the idea in Scripture. The idea in Scripture is more the righteousness of God. And the expectation for Boaz at this particular moment to exhibit righteousness, all that was expected of him was leave her alone. Let her get on with her day. In other words, it was quite a low bar. But Boaz embodies the heart of God in that God's righteousness it never stops at a low bar, does it? God's kindness to us is excessive. And Boaz doesn't just follow what is the letter of the law in the law that's given about gleaning. He understands the spirit of the law also. When that law was written about gleaning, there is a, word, there is a line that's added there 
to the Israelite that says this, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. In other words, the Israelite is always to, to understand everything that I have is a gift from God. I didn't, don't deserve to be here. I don't deserve to own this land. I was a slave. God was kind to me. He rescued me from where I was and put me in this good position. Everything that I have is a gift. And the landowner who is basking in and understanding the grace of God that they have received will not be satisfied just to obey the letter of the law, which is just let the gleaners get on with it. But Boaz seems to go beyond that. He understands the spirit of the law. He understands the grace of God. And he sees this woman and he understands she's in a desperate situation, which is why he then asks the man who's in charge in the field, whose young woman is she? And obviously what Boaz does there is something exceptional in the fact that he took notice. This is what Ruth remarks on when she, she, she answers him a little bit later and she says, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me? And Naomi says the same thing. She says, Who, whose field were you in? What man was it that took notice of you? I think the expectation was that as she set out to glean that day, she would just be kind of invisible in the background. As typically people who were in need do find themselves in that position of being invisible, don't they? But Boaz has a heart that's shaped by the grace of God. I want to ask you a question as a, by way of a challenge, really. Why is it so hard for us to take notice of need when it's around us? Why is it that so often we're blind to the needs of others? I think the answer, we could give many answers. We could talk about the reality of the busyness of life, how we're so preoccupied with the things that we are doing. And we could talk about the fact that fear can come into play here in the sense that, you know, as soon as you take notice of a need, you feel a sense of obligation. That's discomfort. We don't want that, do we? But I think at the bottom of it all, you have to understand that what you notice is reflective of your heart. It's not a neutral thing, whether we do or do not notice need or pain or discomfort where we see it around us. It reflects our hearts, doesn't it? Because our hearts always pay attention to the things that they are consumed with. And if our hearts are only consumed with the things that satisfy us, that bring us joy, that we are interested in, that we are in pursuit of, and as the Lord says, where, you, where, you, where your treasure is, the heart, your heart is, there's a sense in which you know, your soul is consumed by certain things that then reflect what you really treasure and care about. But Boaz's heart is opened up for us in this moment that he, as he steps onto the field, the first thing he seems to see there is, ah, oh, there's someone new here. She's gleaning. There's desperate need here. She wouldn't be here if she were not in total need, an abject need. And it seems to me that this is something that can only happen to us when the, God, when the grace of God is something that melts us and breaks us. When we can say, I was a slave, just as the Israelite was a slave in the land of Egypt, I was outside of God's goodness and favor and kindness. And then he, he brought me in and he gave me everything that I have. 
And that position of being broken down, melted by the grace of God is what then causes us to take notice of need and pain wherever we see it. And so reflect the heart of God. He sees the need. Who do you see in your life now who's in need? There's someone. The second thing is that he then begins to protect the vulnerable. This is the second way in which we see the kindness of God emanating through this man, Boaz. And here's what happens. He gets his answer to his question, whose young woman is this? And his servant, the chief reaper, he answers and says, well, she's the one who came back from Moab with Naomi. And she's been gleaning all morning. She's not stopped except for a short break. In other words, she's, she's working hard to put food on the table. And what is Boaz's first instinct? Ask yourself this. What is his first instinct when he hears news of who this woman is? I just love this man's heart. What a beautiful man he is. He goes and speaks to her, and this is what he says. He says, now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. I think if you can, if you can sort of sum up his main concern in that moment for Ruth is that she be protected. I think perhaps at the back of his mind is an awareness that there's a, she's in danger. As a, as a woman without a man in her life, she was in real danger of molestation or even of being raped. There are a number of stories in the Bible of rapes taking place. And in each of them, you see how male relatives come in as avengers. It takes place in Genesis 34 when, when Dina is raped and two of her brothers, Simeon and Levi, are so angry that they go and take vengeance by killing all the men in, in this foreign village where it took place. It takes place after the book of Ruth in the life of Absalom, when Absalom's sister Tamar is raped and Absalom takes vengeance by killing Amnon. And perhaps also I think that there is in Boaz's mind and memory, perhaps this was within living memory, an event that had taken place at the time of the judges, which is when they were alive, when a Levite had traveled from this very village of Bethlehem with his concubine to a nearby town of Gibeah, and there his concubine had been raped by so many men until she died. And it actually began a war that, did, that had consumed the region for some time. So Boaz is very aware of the wickedness that is there in men's hearts. And when he sees her, what does he, what, how does he describe her? He says, my daughter. He feels a fatherly instinct of protection for her in this position of vulnerability. And then he, may, he says, don't go and glean elsewhere. Glean with my people. And I've told the young men not to go near you, not to touch you, not to, not to give you a difficult time and, or worse. And you can drink whatever they pull out the well. Now to me, this reflects again the heart and the kindness of God to us all, really. Boaz seems to know the heart of God as a God of protection. It's what he says to Ruth a little later on when, she described, when he says to her that she's come 
She's come to be part of the people of God and to be under the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. One of the beautiful pictures in the Hebrew scriptures of who God is. He's like a great eagle whose wings spread over us so that we find shelter and refuge under his protection. Boaz knew that this is the heart of the living God towards us. And he is therefore reflecting the heart of God. His first instinct is, when there's a person in need, I am to provide protection and covering for them. I think, by the way, that this goes to the heart of what biblical masculinity is in Scripture. This sense of bringing protection and covering. There are many other dimensions to it, but it is part of the heart of the Father that is meant to be reflected in men throughout the Bible, that they have this instinct in them. And Boaz embodies this. And I want to ask you, friends, isn't that what the church is for? All of us who've come to know the Lord have come from a place of vulnerability and danger, afflicted by sin and Satan and the threat of death. And to come to know God through the gospel is to come into a place of refuge and safety, a place where you know that nothing can touch you And ultimately, your life is totally secure. And the church is meant to, in some way, be a reflection of the refuge of God. So that whenever someone comes into our midst who is in some way vulnerable or in need, they experience what it means to come under the wings of God, through the kindness of God's people, offering the protection and a place. He's protecting the vulnerable. The third thing I see happening here in which he embodies the kindness of God is is in his welcome of the outsider, of the stranger, of the foreigner. You see how Ruth reacts to all this kindness that she's experiencing from Boaz and she is totally overwhelmed, so overwhelmed that she falls on her face on the ground. It's quite a dramatic gesture, isn't it? But I think it reflects her emotional state the desperation in which she has been and now the unbelievable relief she's feeling that there is going to be food and protection here. It says she fell on her face, bowing to the ground. Why? Well, she puts it like this. She says, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? And the subtext there is not just that she was foreign, but also that she was a Moabite. And the Moabites were no friends to Israel. In fact, it was written in the law that a Moabite could not become part of the people of God for 10 generations. Why? Because centuries earlier, when God's people had moved into the land, the Moabites had been particularly hostile to them. And so that this memory of conflict that lives between them, this animosity between two peoples, the Israelites and the Moabites. And Ruth, in moving to Israel, does not expect to receive kindness. She knows very much that she's an outsider. She doesn't belong. She's a foreigner and she's someone who's likely to be spat upon and despised. Now this to me speaks again of the challenge and the opportunity that there is for us as God's people. The challenge is here that every one of us was an outsider. None of us belonged. 
None of us could say that we belonged to God's people by some kind of birthright. We were all strangers to God's grace. People who were outside the covenant. People who were, were in a sense, isolated and foreign. The New Testament describes your status as having been put into the family of God. Become a people when you were no people. And you know, as I do, the part of the experience of the grace of God is what Ruth expresses here when she falls on her face in amazement and she says, why have I found favor or grace or kindness in your eyes? And you know that if you tasted the grace of God at times, it's put you on your face in that kind of sense of being totally mystified and overwhelmed at how good God is. If you've received it, the challenge in Scripture is always to then extend it to others. And I see in this an amazing opportunity, not least because of where we are as a church in the center of London. A place where many, many people feel like they are outsiders, trying to find their place in the world. We've all been reckoning with and thinking about the reality of this on the level of race, haven't we? How it can be the lived reality for many that they feel themselves to be outsiders in a strange place, not welcome, not given favor, not given grace. And that can be true out in the world. It must never be true within the church and the family of God. But it's true on other levels as well. When you think about the situation of people's souls, how so many people live in a constant state of fear with, with lingering shame, with a sense of unworthiness. And you must never underestimate the courage that it takes for someone even to walk into a church feeling, I don't belong here. And the church of God must therefore be the people who extend the kindness of God, his wings of refuge over such people, welcoming the outsider so that you are constantly breaking down the barriers that say you don't belong because you say, I didn't belong either. That's grace, friends. That's the kindness of God. None of us belonged. I want to ask you the question, what does it look like for you to extend this welcome to another? Who do you know in your life who feels like they're outside? A fourth way that Boaz embodies this kindness of God is, is encouraging Ruth as a seeker, a spiritual seeker. Her story was very odd. So odd, in fact, that her life choices to this point have become the talk of the village. And this is what Boaz says to Ruth. He says, all that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. He understands that Ruth is a bit, a bit of an unusual woman because she hasn't taken the easy choice to go back to her family in Moab. She's stuck with her Hebrew mother-in-law and chosen a life of hardship and sacrifice and risk to herself in order to serve Naomi. And how does Boaz interpret Ruth's choices, her actions? Well, he understands them partly just on the level. This is an extraordinary woman who's very, very devoted and kind. And he wants to therefore repay that kindness with kind, the kindness of God. But there's another way that he sees this also. He sees her actions as being reflective of a kind of spiritual 
hunger in her. And he says, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. In other words, Boaz sees in Ruth a woman whose life has been met with so many disasters that she must have come to the end of herself and recognized that the gods that she worshipped in Moab were worthless gods. And her journey towards the people of God, remember what she said to Naomi when she says, your people will be my people, your God will be my God. Her journey towards the people of God was a shifting of allegiance where she's saying, my gods are useless, they've done me no good up to now. Perhaps there is safety and help and everything I need by coming under the protection of the God that you worship in the land where, where you belong. That's the choice that Naomi has made, that Ruth has made. When Boaz sees that spiritual hunger and urge within this woman, this desperate woman, the, 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 the flicker of spiritual life as she's coming into the people of God, he wants to encourage and embrace that and draw her in. And I ask you, friend, isn't this exactly how the people of God ought to behave and act towards even the slightest flicker of spiritual appetite wherever you see it? The Lord Jesus Christ, as he journeyed through life, he could be hard. He could be hard against those who thought they had it all together. And when he didn't see spiritual hunger or appetite, he, he just ignored those people or, or, or he often attacked them verbally. But when he saw even the slightest hint of an appetite and need being expressed in someone's heart, He'd say things like this, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And he flings wide the doors, the spiritual people who are on a spiritual journey, who are seekers, that they can find a place and find a place at the table of God and get what they need. In a sense, that is the entire mission of the church, to find what, what Christ calls those men of peace in the world, people who are, in a sense, open to the gospel. They were aware of their need. And perhaps that describes you today. You're someone who has tried everything else in life and you recognize that everything else has failed you and left you in a dark place. And you're here because you're saying, well, perhaps there's something available in Christianity. Perhaps there's something here for me. Friend, I want to, I want to open the doors for you. The challenge is for us as a church to ask this question, are there any spiritual seekers in, in our lives, those whose appetite is there, who we need to welcome into the family of God? And this brings me to the last thing that Boaz does to reflect this kindness. He feeds the hungry. If you ask what one word describes Ruth's experience on this first day of work at harvest time. The word is abundance. After she's met Boaz and had this exchange with him, he invites her to come at mealtime. I think it means lunchtime. And he says, come, verse 14, come here and eat, and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. And so she sat. They all have lunch together. They eat roasted grain. It says she ate so much food that she, until she was satisfied and she had some left over. In other words, I don't know how many of your workplaces offer you food at lunchtime, 
I used to work at McDonald's once upon a time, and I could have an extra value meal, but it was only allowed to be a medium size. It was very, very, very specific about that. I visited some of the buildings here in London where some of you were, went to the Google complex once, and they talk about the Google stone, because there, the first month you work there, you put on a stone because they offer all you this free food. It's unbelievable. And here she is. She's at the all-you-can-eat buffet at lunchtime. And she not only fills her stomach, she then has the cheek to gather leftovers. Reminds me of my wife here. She's the only one person I know cheeky enough to go to an all-you-can-eat buffet and take some home as leftovers. <laughs> and that's what Ruth does. And then, and then, as though that were not enough, Boaz then drops in these little instructions to his, to his reapers. He tells them, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her and also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it to her to glean and do not rebuke her. In other words, let her go up to the piles of stalks that we've already gathered and, and take some of those and don't, don't disturb her. And as you're walking along harvesting, surreptitiously just accidentally drop some behind you so that she can fill up her bag. And there is such an abundance in Ruth's experience this day, that she goes home with the leftovers, remember from lunch, the roasted grain, plus the equivalent of 22 liters worth of barley that she's gathered from her day's work. Now, gleaning, that's not how gleaning was supposed to work. This is just taking the mickey. I mean, I don't even know how she managed to carry that home. And this is why Naomi's so amazed. Whose field did you go to? Who took notice of you? Because this is not normal. And the word, therefore, that, that captures the experience that Ruth has coming into the experience of God's kindness is this word abundance. And it's so evocative of what the gospel offers us, friends. I open the service with the 107th Psalm. For it says, some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in, hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. But then they cried to the Lord. No one comes to God unless they experience spiritual hunger. But when you are aware of that hunger in your life, it's God you must go to. And the promise of the psalm there is that when they cried to the Lord, he brought them out from that wilderness. He brought them into the warmth of his city, the people of God. And then it says he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. And that's the word that, that describes Ruth's experience that day. She was satisfied. She went home probably for the first time in a long time with a full belly, having eaten enough. That glow of the joy of feasting and of having enough to see them through the weeks and months to come. I want to leave us on this challenge, friends. What does it mean for us to embody the generosity of the gospel? It begins always remembering that you have encountered this exact same kindness that Ruth encountered because Jesus is your Boaz. He saw you in your need. He put his wings of protection over you. He welcomed you in as an outsider. He encouraged the flicker of spiritual 
desire in you and then he fed you, gave you a seat at his table and fed you so that you have everything you need. That is the experience of being the child of God. Christ is our Boaz. But now he puts it on you to go and be a bearer of his grace and his kindness to everyone that you encounter. This is the mission of God, friends. This is what we are here to be and do, to embody the goodness of God. And what does that look like? It looks like excessive kindness and generosity because that's how God has been towards us. It looks like goodness and generosity oozing out from every pore of who we are. As Jesus says, freely you have received, now freely give. And so it results in generosity, in time, in help, in love, in compassion, in gentleness, but most of all in the giving of the gospel, sharing Christ with others. And friend, I want to remind you, God has no other way of reaching the world than through the kindness of his people. That is how he has chosen to extend his kingdom, the kingdom of kindness, through you and I.